0: through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you, what has been the effect of the gospel In your life, what change has been wrought in your life uh, through the gospel over this past year? A lot of us—that's a different question than do you know the gospel? You know, can you articulate the gospel? You know, there's a difference between knowing about the gospel, and intellectually, and knowing the gospel. You know, knowing about the gospel would be would be analogous to like cut flowers. You know, cut flowers. You can see the flowers, there's a degree of scent and and fragrance, but there's no fruit that's being born out of the cut flowers. Uh, To know the gospel, though, and to to have your roots planted in it, uh, produces a fruit uh, out of your life. It's like cut flowers versus a potted flower. A potted flower can continue to sustain and and create fragrance and create fruit because it's rooted and grounded, and that's what Paul wants us to know in this in this opening introduction of his letter. He wants us to to understand the difference between knowing about the gospel and knowing the gospel, knowing the gospel so that it bears fruit. Now, it's a simple introduction, really. I mean, in accordance with the letters of the time, we write letters differently now, right? We we say to who it is or the sendee, whoever we're addressing it to, and then we give the body of the letter, and then we end it with who's written the letter. In the uh, Hellenistic world, it wasn't that way. They would the, the author, the sender of the letter, would state who he is, and then, and then to whom he's writing, and then the greetings in the body of the letter. And that's what we see Paul doing here. But Paul does it a little differently. This is his most extended introduction of all of his letters. Uh, he's really speaking personally. And theologically, it's a heavy... Theological introduction. Why? Well, remember what I said last week, he's writing to a church that he didn't know. And so he's introducing himself and he's introducing to him, to them, his theology. Why? Well, remember, part of the reason why he's writing this letter is that he wants them to help him move the gospel to Spain. He wants that church to partner with him so that they together would take the gospel to Spain. They didn't know him. And so he writes about them. So when, I, when we look at this sermon, uh, we're just going to follow the outline of the introduction. We're going to talk about Paul. Paul, who's an apostle of God. He's a servant of God, we're going to find. And that's in verse 1. And then we're going to look at the gospel of God. This is what he's preaching. This is what he's declaring. And that's in verses 2 through really 5. And then we're going to look at the people of God, those to whom he writes in 6 and 7. So there's kind of three movements of the text, and we're just going to follow along with it. Uh, So first, let's let's listen to what Paul says about himself. How does he identify himself? He identifies himself really, and I think uniquely, as a servant of Christ Jesus, and he's called to be an apostle, and he is set apart for the gospel of God. That's all he says. Now, you know, when you introduce yourself, and when I introduce myself, we tend to want to put our best foot forward and maybe talk about who we are, where we've come from, and our background, our experience, our heritage, whatever, our family, some connection with the people that we're speaking with, maybe even some accomplishments, or these have been our experiences, but Paul doesn't do that. He simply says he's a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, a servant, that little, that little word, you know, servant has a, a nicer connotation than the word is probably more slave. He's a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, to be a servant or a slave of God adds a measure of dignity to it because of the the, the value of the person to whom you're serving. But, but Paul wants us to understand he sees himself as an absolute slave to Christ. That, that everything Christ is and wants and desires, Paul's going to seek to do. Paul's absolutely abdicating his will and submitting himself to God to say, I want to follow God. I want to follow Christ, who is my Lord. It, it's a position of humility. But he also says he's, he's called as an apostle. Now, an apostle does have authority with it right there we don't have apostles anymore people call themselves in certain denomination apostles maybe a little a apostle if you would but but the apostles in the new testament were those who had seen christ raised from the dead so obviously it's a position that has a, a has a certain terminal point to it uh, because there are no you know only in that first generation were those who had seen christ be raised from the dead and so he's been called but but though he has authority and a unique position he states how humble he is about it. He's been called to it. He didn't aspire to it. He didn't qualify for it. He didn't seek it out. I mean, God called him. You see that in verse 5, didn't you, when he says, through whom we received apostleship and grace, and you could translate that, who we received apostleship through grace. It wasn't inherent in Paul. In fact, in Galatians 1.15, he says, that he was called from his mother's womb. Why would he say that? To let everybody know he did not have what it took to be an apostle. He didn't have it inherent to him. He didn't have that quality that he should be an apostle. No, it was by God's sheer grace that he was called to do it. And then we find out that Paul also says he's been set apart for the gospel. And you'll see this in Acts chapter 9 when he was called on the road to Damascus. That God says you're going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He was set apart for a certain task. Now, I think if Paul hadn't have been converted, he wouldn't have introduced himself this way. Uh, Paul was much more confident and strong in himself. If, he, if you listen to how he sees himself in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. As to the law, he was blameless. Paul's been changed. Paul has been changed to start saying, no, I'm a servant. I've only been called to be an apostle, and I'm set apart for the gospel. You see a humility here, and it's come about from his conversion. So in Acts 9, if you don't know the story, in Acts 9, Paul's going to Damascus, and he's going to persecute Christians. Paul had a clear vision to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, it says the text says he was breathing threats. I mean, he is just angry at this church. He's going. He had already put men and women... And children in prison for following Christ. So he's going to expand his reach of persecution. And it's on the way that he's going to do that. That God says enough. And Christ. Blinding light. Knocks him to the ground. Says no more. You're going to be a servant to me. Changed his whole life. He ends up becoming the greatest. At least in terms of the letters written. The greatest apostle ever. He just said that's it. You're you're done persecuting. Now you're going to serve me. Good reminder when we see a person like Paul. Some of us, I think, when we look at those in our family or our friends, and we think, we try to determine how close they are, if they're not Christian, how close they are to becoming Christian based upon how open they are to the truth or how open they are to discuss. And we think that if they're more open, if they're more communicative, maybe they're closer to receiving the gospel. God doesn't need that. Look at Paul. He's breathing threats. And God says, enough. I want you to be my servant. I mean, it's just amazing that the Lord's arm is never too short. That we may look at people and determine where they are on this continuum of coming close to faith. Not so with God. May that encourage you to continue praying for those in your family or friends or the neighbors that seem so resistant and so hardened that they are not out of his reach. And so this is how Paul's been changed. And this is why he now identifies himself as a servant and as an apostle and of apart. How would you identify yourself? If you had to write a letter for the church, what would you say? How do you, do, you, do you identify yourself as a Christian or a believer? Would you ever call yourself a servant of Christ? Does that seem too spiritual a term? Do you see that we just don't speak that way anymore? I understand why you wouldn't call yourself an apostle. If you did, we'd probably have to chat and speak about it a little bit. Uh, Because then you could start writing scripture or something. But but would you call yourself a servant? Or would you call yourself set apart for the gospel? Now, maybe you're not set apart to preach to the Gentiles as Paul was. But we're all set apart. I mean, we're all set apart to see how the gospel affects our lives and should change us. But could you call yourself a servant? Do you see your life as being identified as one who is seeking to follow Christ? Would you create an identity around being known by Christ rather than creating an identity about what you do or how effective you are at the job or or being a mother or being a parent or or being working at this company. I mean, do you see your thoughts and your ways trying to parallel Christ? Do you seek in the morning to get up and think, I I want to serve you by serving your people? Do these things come in your mind? The Christian wants to be a servant of this great master. I mean, we want our lives to be reflective. Jesus, who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, he's kind of set the path for us. So so maybe ask, maybe talk to a spouse or a friend today. Would you like to be called a servant of Christ? Is that how you can begin to identify yourself and see yourself as truly a servant? I'm going to submit to him today, not out of demand or not out of fear, but out of joy. The one who came to serve me, I want to serve out of gladness and willingness of heart. If you're not a Christian here and you're just visiting it may seem strange that we call ourselves servant of Christ. I mean, you think he's dead. Nobody's a servant to someone who's dead. I mean, once the person dies, the termination of service is over. So so, so doesn't make sense. Well, of course we would say that in the text it reminds us that he's been raised. We would say that the scriptures show how The eyewitnesses, the apostles, and Paul himself testified to seeing Christ alive. So the reason we say that we are servants of Christ Jesus is because we believe he's been raised. He's seated at the right hand of God, and he's ruling right now, and so we do serve a reigning and returning king. When he returns, we don't know. We wait for him with joy-filled anticipation. But that's why we call ourselves servants of Christ Jesus. Okay, so that's Paul, that's the apostle, that's simply in verse 1. But look at Paul the apostle who's set apart for the gospel. He explains what the gospel is to us. Remember, we're just in the introduction. Paul's just trying to let the people of Rome know this is who he is. I want to explain four things about this gospel that I think are important for us to understand. For some of you, this may be a a, a bit of a retread, and I, I pray it would only refresh you. Uh, For others, it might not be. But but notice what he says about the gospel. At the very end of verse 1, he says, the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Now, remember what gospel means. Gospel just means good news. That's all it means. Evangelium, it's a word used in secular Greek literature. It was a word used at the birth of Caesar Augustus. It was good news that we have this one born to us. So everybody has good news, but this is different good news. This is good news from God. God has good news for us. And of course, this good news is going to be that Christ is going to come to deliver us. But I want you to understand this good news is differentiated from good news from Paul or the apostles or the collected wisdom of the day. This is good news from God. The gospel, the bringing forth of a son to save us, was was God's idea. It originated with God. It's his plan. It was in his heart. And it's not, just, it's not just from God, it's about God. When you look at the gospel, uh, you see the kindness of God to meet us in our sin. You, you see the mercy of God to forgive us. You see the, the compassion of God to adopt us as children through faith. I mean, all of it's from God. Credit him with the idea that Paul did in Second Corinthians 5.19. He says, "All of this is from God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ." Critic God with it. The Gospels about God. You know Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century. He says this. He says the Christian religion is not the result of blind accident or fate determined by stars, as many empty-headed people have arrogantly assumed, but it was by God's definite plan, deliberate predetermination, that it should come out so. God determined. The time, the place, the people. God did it all. The good news that we have has come to us from God. But not just from God. Notice how Paul continues in verse 2 when he says, This has been promised beforehand. In other words, the source of the gospel is God, but the evidence of it's found in scriptures. In other words, the good news, the gospel is not a theological novelty. It is good news, but it's not new news. It's old news. It's been part of the Old Testament, right? Adam knew the gospel, Abraham knew the gospel, David knew the gospel, Isaiah knew the gospel. Let me just remind you, back in Genesis chapter 3, you have God promising the man and the woman who have fallen into sin, they're separated from God, he says, listen, from you will come a seed and he will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, he's going to crush the one who incited the rebellion that caused about this breakage of God's creation from God. Or in Genesis 12, 1-3, Abraham is told by God that his seed will be a blessing to the nations of whom Paul's now going to with the gospel. You see David being promised that he would have a son in 2 Samuel 7, and his son would have an eternal kingdom. And then you see Isaiah pick up the language of David's son being born of a virgin, right? And, and being called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Everlasting, Count Everlasting Father. That, that upon him a government would rest, the Son of David. So you see the Gospels throughout the Old Testament. We don't see the New Testament as a separate book. It's one book. It's one book, one plan, one God, one Savior. That's all. It's all together. In fact, Jesus even said this in John chapter 5. Speaking with the religious leadership, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. All of the scriptures are testifying to Christ about who he is, that he's coming. So, so the gospel was from God, but we see it as evidence in the scriptures. One more thing we learn about the gospel. You see in verse 2, it concerns the Son. I should say verse 3, excuse me. It concerns the Son. The centerpiece of the gospel is Christ. You take Christ out of the gospel, you have no gospel. You have no good news. Notice what he says, though, in verse 3 about Jesus, the centerpiece of the gospel. He says he's a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Very interesting verse here, very difficult to translate. He is from David, so he is a human. He is not existing for the first time. We know that Christ has always existed. He's been with the Father forever, equal to the Father, with the Father. But we see that he entered the realm of humiliation. He entered our world of brokenness. He took on flesh and He became the son of David. He had to because the son of David was promised that he would be an eternal king, Messiah forever. So he had to enter that. But he entered our realm of humiliation, if you will. But he didn't stay there. And you can see, because Paul says he was a descendant of David, but he's declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection according to the Spirit of holiness. Now, that's interesting, because he always was the Son of God. So what does he mean here? Well, I don't think he means a change of nature. We call that adoptionism. I don't think he was human and then he became divine. No, he's always been divine. But there's a change not in his nature, but there's a change in status. He was in the flesh, according to the the flesh, the son of David, bound by all the sufferings and the weakness that we feel. But by his resurrection, the spirit has exalted him to a place that's far above all rule and authority and dominion. He's changed status. Paul says this gospel concerning the son, he was among us, in this world of humiliation, but now he's been exalted to the right hand. And we see passages like Matthew 28, when Jesus says that, that all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to me. Or you see it in Philippians. Notice the humiliation, exaltation change here. He says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled or humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what we call the humiliation of Christ. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So do you see the transition? What Paul's saying is this Christ This Jesus, the centerpiece of the gospel, was with us, suffered with us, bound in a world of humiliation, but not so any longer. By his resurrection, he's been raised to the right hand of God, above all rule, authority, and power. This is exciting that we now worship a God that is sovereign, not bound as we now are bound. So we see that the gospel is from God. It's evidence in the scriptures, it's centered on Christ, but the last thing we see is in verse 5, and that is that the gospel is about the glory of Christ. Now, this is another kind of challenging verse to read. Look with me at it. Paul says, Through whom we receive grace and apostleship, or as I explained, I think that is, we've received an apostleship by grace. He says, To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name, among the nations, Now, Paul has been charged to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, what does it mean, the obedience of faith? Why didn't he just say he was charged to go and to draw the world to faith in Christ? But he says, obedience of faith. Well, there's a lot of possibilities here, but one I would submit to you is that Paul is wanting us to see, he doesn't want us to carve up the Christian life, as in, I, I believe now to be saved by faith, but now I've got to start earning God's approval by the level of obedience that I am able to marshal out of my own power. He wants us to see faith and obedience as two sides to a coin. In other words, faith, genuine faith, is evidenced, it's validated by a life of obedience that you live. Now, this is kind of separating it from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's argument of of the cost of discipleship, cheap grace. You know, a lot of people think, well, I'm just going to believe and I'll be saved and then I can get about my life as I want. And they say, well, I, I believed. I mean, back then when I was, whenever, 18, 22, whatever, I believed. And then we just live a life the way we want. It'd be like me and Carol and say, so well, I loved her when I got married, but I just like all these other girls now. But I, I did love her. We're married. I mean, I, I made the commitment to her. You don't have it both ways. It's, it's two sides to a coin that genuine faith that is evidence of conversion, because obedience is believing the gospel. That's your first step of obedience. I'm taking a step to believe the gospel. I, I believe that Christ has died for my sins and has risen for my life. But then that, that belief that's exercised, that obedience and belief, is then validated as I continue to obey. It's not that we don't sin, but when we sin, we see it as disobedience and we repent of that sin. So we might walk in obedience again. I think that's what he's driving at. But Paul, who you know, kind of describes his mission as calling the nations to an obedience of faith, that's not his fundamental goal. His fundamental goal is for the sake of his name. In other words, Paul's motivation of mission is the very glory of Christ that he'll receive from those who believe. So that's why John Piper says missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions is for the end goal of worship. That, that all of our missionary, all of your missional activities, whether it's overseas, halfway around the world, or whether it's you mustering up the courage to speak to your neighbor about the good things of God, the end goal on our hearts is that Christ would be honored by that life. That Christ would be worshiped by that person. That they would come to understand the incredible worth of Jesus Christ. That's what motivates missions. Not a have to, not a get to. It's to see round the throne of grace, every tribe, tongue, and nation represented by those whom God has chosen, that you have brought the gospel to. That's the dynamic here. So that's the nature of the gospel. Paul, as a servant of God, explains in his introduction this profound definition of the gospel of God just in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, in pregnant statements. Now, let this gospel be good news to you. So many of us, it's so familiar, and we forget what it teaches us. I mean, the gospel is good news because it reminds us of the care of God. How many of us can tend to think God is a bit stodgy, old-fashioned, maybe even distant? Maybe you've been praying, and he hasn't answered your prayers. Maybe he hasn't felt close to you. And yet, when you see this, This kind of text is supposed to fashion our understanding of who God is. You know, Most of us, or many of us, if you're the older brother type like I am, I can tend to think God is a a God of merit. That even though I've been saved by grace, somehow I keep falling off the grace trail into the merit trail. And if I do this, 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 and this, then he's going to love me. And yet we see here, this plan of rescue was all his idea. He's a kind and gracious and loving God. Will you let this scripture change your view of God? If you've come in here thinking that God is not kind and generous and merciful and long-suffering, would you let this text adjust your frame of reference? It's not only good news that God's so kind to us, but but it's good news that, that the gospel authenticates the scriptures. We live in an age of distrust. We don't trust people. We don't trust our politicians. And sadly, there is much material that would warrant maybe that response. Uh, we tend not to trust business situations and the like. We think they're out for their good and not ours. We, we, we fight and struggle to trust. But God keeps his promises. He's the one that you can trust. His word is being authenticated by him keeping the promise that the son would come forth, and he did. A savior would come to deliver, and he did. Uh, uh, He would be put to death, and he was. He was going to be raised from the dead, and he was. So, I mean, it authenticates the truthfulness of Scripture. This is why we read the Bible, and you get in the beginning of every year this Bible reading plan. We want to know what God says. This is why we dedicate time in the sermon to preach the scriptures. We want to know who God is and what he says. You know, it says in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. That's why we preach the words of Christ. And we preach the words about Christ. Because that's how you're strengthened. God forms a people by his word. And so as his word is explained to you and you adjust your life, you become more human. You become more Christ-like. That's what it's for. It's good news for that. But it's also good news when I've just explained to you the gospel should make us happy because we really are forgiven. You know, the salvation offered in the scriptures is not a potential salvation. It's not if you do these things, then maybe. No, it's an actual salvation. When he suffered and died and was raised, he was confirmed to be the son of God in power. He actually can save to the uttermost. So many of us are worried, are we going to finish well in life? Well, Romans has a word for us. We won't get to this until a few weeks, but he says he was delivered over to death for our sins. And was raised to life for our justification. You are now justified by faith. You know, many of us, have trouble forgiving ourselves. We look back at our past, and we look at the darkness of it, and we begin to focus on some specific and very, very dark sins that we've committed. And we think that God can somehow forgive the littler stuff, but the big stuff that we've done. Maybe you've, you've been adulterous, or you've had an abortion, or, you've, or you have um, participated in just ruining the reputation of another person. Or perhaps you've had such murderous thoughts in your mind over and over. You could never be forgiven of those things. Not so from this gospel. This gospel is able to clean you. He was raised for your justification. So that when God sees you, you will be justified. You will be forgiven. This is good news. You don't have to carry those dead corpses along with you. Oftentimes, my mind goes back to the darker days in college and high school. And I'm reminded, and my mind's very sharp on these things, sadly, and I'm reminded of many of the things I did that I'm just ashamed of. And and I have to remind myself, no, 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 that too, he died for that too. No, no, I'm not going to carry that if he has forgiven it. I don't want to drag it behind me anymore. And I may go through this on a repeated basis, but that's the hope of the gospel that we have. And this gospel is also good news because it's for the world. This is news for everyone, not just for us in America or not just for us and not just for the Jewish nation. You know, many people, they'll hear me say this and they'll say, hey, that's arrogant of you. It's arrogant for you to say that everybody from every culture and every other religion has to believe in Jesus Christ. And they'd say, no, no, no. I mean, everybody has their own path up the mountain. And so what I would say to them, "Well, well, that's arrogant. How do you know that? Are you God? I mean, have you been up every path? Do you know that every path ends up there? Do you really know that? Have you somehow taken a, a balloon to see all the paths and you know that they... That's just as arrogant. No. We preach it because we're servants and we're called to. We believe it. And we believe it's for the good of the world. It's the good news for the world. The world needs this. So that's what you have. Paul, an apostle of God, he explains to this church the gospel of God. This gospel of God that has come from God, it's recorded in the scriptures, it's centerpieced on Christ, and it's for the nations to bring glory to his name. That's how it's all going to end in Revelation 5. All tribes, tongues, and nations, and peoples are going to be around the throne of God, and they're going to worship both the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb who is at his right hand. Well, the last part of this introduction, then, is the people of God, right? You see this in 6 and 7. He says there to those in Rome. Now, this is what I want, to, I want you to get your mind around. I think Paul, after speaking about the gospel, is reminding them of who they are in the gospel. He's reminding them who they are in the gospel. What are the implications of the gospel for them? And notice what he says. Look in verse 6. He says, including you. In other words, Paul's goal is to go to the nations of which they are a part of. So I think he's going to be explaining that he is an apostle to them as well. But he says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, or or literally in Greek, it's to those who are called of Christ. Uh, Now notice too, at the end of 7, he says, um, or midway through 7, he says, you're called to be saints. So he uses this word twice, Called of Christ, called to be saints. This language is uniquely—it's uh, language uniquely applied to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They were a called people, and yet he's saying now to the church, "You are a called people." He's applying to the Gentiles language that was reserved for the for the Jewish nation. He's showing us that now there's a new corporate identity for the people of God. It's not ethnically Israel. It's actually now with Christ as our head, Jew and Gentile together. We now belong to God in Christ. That's what he's saying here. Uh, This is your identity. In other words, you have to refashion how you look at yourself now. You've been called of God. This isn't something you did, you warranted, you merited. No, no, no. It's God's mercy that he called you to himself. He's called you out of darkness. Again, from last week. Why do you believe and your sibling doesn't? Why do you love Christ and really believe that he has died and been raised for you, and the person next to you has the same level edu- of education, same background, and they don't believe? It, it, is it because you're smarter? I don't think you'd say that. You've been called by God. And, and, and that's, that's the grace of God in your life. It, it's the grace, and that's why he calls us, he calls us into the family of Christ uh, to be holy, to be saints, to set our lives apart. That's why we want to walk in obedience to God. He's called us. He loves us. In fact, he says that in the next verse. He says, to those in Rome who are loved by God. Do you know that you're loved by God? You know, sometimes I've got to pound this in my head like with a, with a, with a hammer. You are loved by God. You are beloved. That's what he says. Again, I'm asking you to conform the way you may look at yourself and the way you analyze how God views you. As a parent, some of the hardest thing, a a challenging thing would be when you're trying to articulate to your child how much you love them, and yet they don't feel that love. And they are implying motives or they're implying feelings to you. You're like, I really love you. But the, search, the situation or the circumstances are such that maybe they don't sense your love. But you have that love. You know, God is saying here to those in Rome who are beloved of God. You're beloved. And that, that's, that's the fuel of why you were called, by the way. You weren't called because you had potential. You were called into his family because he loves you. Right In Ephesians, Paul says clearly, in love he predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters. You are deeply loved by God. We so easily slip back into this meritocracy that that he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not based upon what I do. I've got to fight that all the time. But I want to fight it. I want to fight it. You know, Lamentations gives us this encouragement because many of us, I have heard you share... And I know that you've thought this way. That I don't know how God could love me. And it really just stops up the flow of God's grace that he wants for you. And I received this instruction instructions from Lamentations chapter 3. Uh, Jeremiah says this, he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. In other words, he's going to take his mind and he's going to recall this. He's going to be reminded of this. And once he's reminded of this, then he's going to have hope. And what he says is, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. In other words, don't listen to the lies in your mind. You want to remind, he says this, this I call to mind. I want you to call to your mind so that you can have hope that he calls you beloved. That's why you've been called. He calls you beloved. So so what Paul's going to do now with the bulk of the letter is just explain all that I've shared with you in this kind of nutshell of a sermon. Uh, that Paul is a servant of God. He explains the gospel of God. And he wants to remind the people of God to know you've been called, you've been loved. And this is what life is going to look for you. So let me encourage you. We have a few moments of of maybe quiet meditation. And in this meditation that we always give you, we pray that God would do a hundred things in your soul in these few moments. Maybe to some of you, it will be conviction of a truth that you've long forgotten. Uh, For some of you, it will just be to encourage you that you would feel strengthened because you feel weak. Others of you, it would maybe have more of a crushing effect on resistance that you may have to God. Uh, But but you are dearly loved by God. I I want you to hear me say that to you. I want to say that so I can hear it myself, that we have been loved by God. And the way we know that is we've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. It's a work of God. It originated with him. So let's just take a minute and enjoy this, and then um, I will pray for us.